Section 28 of The Book of the Bush. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Magdalena Cook. The Book of the Bush by George Dunderdale. Section 28. Wanted. A Cattle Market. It seemed incredible to the first settlers in North Gippsland that their new Punjab, the land of the five rivers, which emptied their waters into immense lakes, should communicate with the sea by no channel suitable for ships, and an expedition was organised to endeavour to find an outlet. Macmillan had two boats at his station at Bushy Park, but he had no sails, so he engaged Davy as sailmaker and chief navigator on the intended voyage. The two men rowed together from the old port up the track over Tom's cap, and shot two pigeons by the way which was fortunate, for when they arrived at Kilmeny Park, William Pearson was absent, and his men were found to be living under a discipline so strict that his stock-keeper, Jimmy Rental, had no meat, and dared not kill any without orders. So Macmillan and Davy fried the pigeons, and ate one each for supper. Next morning they shot some ducks for breakfast, and then proceeded on their journey. They called at Mewburn Park, arrived at Bushy Park, Macmillan's own station, and Davy began making the sails the same evening. Next morning he crossed the river in a canoe, made out of a hollow log, to Boysdale, Lachlan McAllister station, and went to the milking yard. The management was similar to that of the dancer at Greenmount. Eleven men and women were milking about 150 cows, superintended by nine highlanders, who were sitting on the top rails, discoursing in Gaelic. One of them was Jock MacDonald, who was over eighteen stone in weight, too heavy for any ordinary horse to carry. The rest were McAllister, Gillies, and Thompsons. The stockmen were convicts, and they lived with the Highlanders in the big building like the barracks for soldiers. Every man seemed to do just what he liked, to kill what he liked, and to eat what he liked, and it was astonishing to see so little discipline on a station owned by a gentleman who had been service both in the army and in the border police. The blacks were at this time very troublesome about the new stations. They began to be fond of beef, and in order to get it they drove fat cattle into the morasses and speared them. This proceeding produced strained relations between the two races, and the only effectual remedy was the gun. But many settlers had scruples about shooting black fellows, except in self-defence, and it could hardly be called self-defence to shoot one or more of the natives because the beast had been spared by some person or persons unknown. John Campbell, at Glencoe, tried a dog, a savage deerhound, which he trained to chase the human game. This dog acquired great skill in seizing a black fellow by the heel, throwing him and worrying him until Campbell came up on his horse. When the dog had thus expelled the natives from Glencoe, Campbell agreed to lend him to Little Curlewis for three months in order to clear Holy Plain Station. Curlewis paid ten heifers for the loan of the dog, and Campbell himself went to give him a start in the hunt, as the animal would not own any other man as master. But the blacks soon learned that Campbell and his dog had left Glencoe unprotected, and the second night after his departure they boldly entered the potato patch near his hut, and bandicooted the whole of his potatoes. When the sails were made, the two boats were provisioned with tea, sugar, flour, and a keg of whisky, 
the meat was carried in the shape of two live sheep to be killed when required. The party consisted of eight men, and each man was armed with a double-barrel gun. Macmillan, MacLennan, Lochnan, and Davy went in one boat, and in the other boat were William Pearson, John Reeve, Captain Orr, and Sheridan, who was manager for Raymond at Stratford. Sheridan was a musical man, and took his flute with him. When everything was ready, they dropped down the river to Lake Willington, and took note of the soundings during the whole of the voyage as they went along. Wherever they approached either shore, they saw natives or found traces of them. Every beach was strewn with the feathers of ducks, swans, and other birds they had killed, and it was difficult to find sufficient dead wood near the water to make a fire, the blacks having used so much of it at their numerous camping places. The gins had an ingenious system of capturing the ducks. They moved along under the water, leaving nothing but their nostrils visible above the surface, and they were thus able to approach the unsuspecting birds. As opportunity offered, they seized them by the legs, drew them quickly under water, and held them until they were drowned. When they had secured as many as they could hold in one hand, they returned to land. One of the explorers always kept guard while the others slept, the first watch of each night being assigned to Davy, who baked the damper for the next day. One of the sheep was killed soon after the voyage commenced, and the duty of taking ashore, tethering and guarding the other sheep at each landing place was taken in turn by Pearson and Lochnan. At the lower end of the lakes the water was found to be brackish, so they went ashore at several places to look for fresh water. They landed on a flat at Reeves River, and Davy found an old well of the natives, but it required cleaning out, so he went back to the boat for a spade. It was Lochnan's turn that day to tether the sheep on some grassy spot, and to look after it. The animal by this time had become quite a pet, and was called Jimmy. On coming near the boats, Davy looked about for Jimmy, but could not see him, and asked Lochnan where he was. "'Oh, he's all right,' said Lochnan. "'I did not tether him, but he is over there eating the reeds.' "'Then he's gone,' replied Davy. Every man became seriously alarmed and ran down to the reeds, for Jimmy carried their whole supply of meat. They found his tracks at the edge of the water, and followed them to the foot of a high bluff, which they ascended, calling as they went, repeatedly for Jimmy. They looked in every direction, scanning especially the tops of the reeds to see if Jimmy was moving amongst them, but they could see no sign of the sheep that was lost. The view of land and river, mountain and sea, was very beautiful but they were too full of sorrow for Jimmy to enjoy it. On going away, they agreed to call the bluff Jimmy's Point, but other voyagers came afterwards who knew nothing of Jimmy, and they named it Kalimna, the Beautiful. Near the shore, a number of sandpipers were shot and stewed for dinner in a large iron pot which was half full of mutton fat. Then the party pulled down to the entrance of the lakes at Reeves River, went ashore and camped for the night. Next day they found an outlet to the ocean, and sounded it as they went along, finding six feet of water on the bar at low tide. But the channel proved afterwards to be a shifting one. The strong current round Cape Howe, and the southerly gales, open filled it with sand, and it was not until many years had passed and much money had been expanded that a permanent entrance was formed. In the meantime all the trade of Gippsland was carried on first through the old port, and then through the new Port Albert. 
For ten years all vessels were piloted without buoy or beacon, in one year one hundred and forty having been entered inwards and outwards. The party now started on the return voyage. In going up the lakes a number of blacks were observed on the port beach, and the boats were pulled towards the land until they grounded, and some of the men went ashore. The natives were standing behind a small sand hummock, calling out to the visitors. One of them had lost an eye, and another looked somewhat like a white man brown with the sun and weather, but only the upper part of his body could be seen above the sand. One of the men on shore said, Look at that white fellow. That was the origin of the rumour which was soon spread through the country, that the blacks had a white woman living with them. The result being that for a long time the black fellows were hunted and harassed continually by parties of armed men. When the natives behind the sand hummock saw that the white men had no arms, they began to approach them without their spears. Sheridan took up his flute, and they ran back to the scrub. But after he had played a while, they came nearer again and listened to the music. After pulling two or three miles, another party of natives was seen running along the sands, and the explorers went ashore again at a point of land where seven or eight men had appeared, but no one was now visible. Davy climbed up a honeysuckle tree, and then he could see them hiding in the scrub. Several of them were seized and held by the white men, who gave them some sugar and then let them go. The boats then sailed away with a nice easterly breeze, and in MacLennan Straits hundreds of black fellows were seen up in the trees, shouting and shaking their spears, but the boats were kept away in midstream and out of reach of the weapons. That night the camp was made at Boney Point, near the mouth of the River Avon. The name was given to it on account of the large quantity of human bones found there. No watch was kept, as it was believed that all the blacks had been left behind in MacLennan's Straits. There was still some whisky left in the keg, and before going to sleep, Orr, Lochnan, and Sheridan sang and drank alternately until the vessel was empty. At daylight they pulled up the oven and landed at Clydebank, which was at that time one of McAllister's stations, but afterwards belonged to Thompson and Cunningham. After breakfast they walked to Raymond Station at Stratford, and then to Macmillan's at Bushy Park. The cattle brought over the mountains into Gippsland soon grew fat, and the first settlers sold some of them to other men who came to search for runs, but the local demand was soon supplied. In two years and a half all the best land was occupied. An intending settler who had driven a herd of cattle seven hundred miles had some bitter complaints to make about the country in June 1843. He said, The whole length of Gippsland, from the bore of the mountains in which the road comes, is one hundred and ten miles, and the breadth about fifteen miles, the whole area one thousand six hundred and fifty square miles, one third of which is useless through scrub and morris which leaves only 1,100 square miles come at Able at all, and nearly a third of this is useless. On this 1,100 square miles of land there are 45,000 sheep, 1,500 cattle, and 300 horses. Other herds of cattle and about 2,000 sheep are expected daily. The blacks are continuing their outrages, robbing huts and gardens and slaughtering cattle wholesale. Mrs. Pearson and Cunningham being the latest sufferers by the cannibals. Sheep shearing is nearly completed, after paying a most exorbitant price to the shearers. Footnote. 
In the season of 1844, the average price per 100 for sheep shearing was 8 shillings. The highest price asked, 8 shillings 6. End of footnote. The wool is much lighter than in any other part of the colony, and the skins much thicker than in hotter climates. And lastly, a collection has been made for the support of a minister. But the minister was not supported long, and he had to shake the dust of Gippsland off his feet. From Dan to Besheba, from the bore in the mountains to the shores of the corner inlet, all was barren to this disappointed drover. And the squatters, in order to keep a foothold in the country, had to seek markets for their stock over the sea. The first to export cattle was James Macfarlane of Hayfield. He chartered the schooner Waterwitch for £100 a month for six months, and found her in everything. She arrived on March 2, 1842, but could not come up to the port being too sharp in the bottom, and drawing when loaded with cattle, 13 feet 6 inches, so she lay down at the oyster beds. Macfarlane borrowed the square punt from the Clonmel wreckers. A weak stockyard of tea tree was erected, and the punt was moored alongside. A block was made fast to the bottom of the punt, and a rope rove through it to a bullock's head, and the men hauled on the rope. Sometimes a beast would not jump, and had to be levered and bundled into the punt, neck and crop. Then the men got into a boat, and reached over to make the rope fast from the head of the bullock to one of the eye-bolts which were fixed round the punt, and even then the bullock would sometimes go overboard. It took a week to load twenty fat bullocks and twenty cows with their calves, the schooner set sail for New Zealand on April 2nd, 1842, and at Port Nicholson the bullocks were sold for 15 and the cows for £12 each cash. The Waterwitch returned to Port Albert on April 29th and took in another cargo of breeding cattle, which had to be sold on bills, the cash at Port Nicholson being exhausted. Macfarlane next sought for a market at Hoberton, which was then supplied with beef from Twofold Bay. Forty bullocks were put on board the Water Witch in five days, and in forty-eight hours they were offered for sale in Hobarton, and fetched fourteen pounds ten shillings a head. All but one, a snail-horned brute, which was very wild. When he landed, a number of soldiers were at drill in the paddock, and he charged the redcoats at once. They prepared to receive cavalry, but he broke through the ranks, scattered the citizens the whole length of Liverpool Street and reached the open country. Gisden, the auctioneer, sold the chance of him for £11. At this time nobody in Hoberton had heard of such a place as Gippsland, but the fat cattle, which were far superior to those imported from Twofold Bay, soon made the new territory well known, and many enterprising men of various characters found their way to it from the island. Macfarlane sent over another cargo of forty bullocks, thirty-seven of which averaged fourteen pounds. One was lost, and two belonging to McAllister, heavy weights, were sold for forty pounds ten shillings. Macmillan took over the water witch for the next trip, and also chartered the schooners Industry and Scotia, which were the first vessels brought up to the shipping place at Port Albert on August 3, 1842. Each of these vessels took two cargoes to Harberton, which sold well, and then McAllister chartered the brig Patina, which would hold sixty bullocks. The Clonmel punt was now dispensed with. The cattle were roped, put in the water, and made to swim between the vessel and the boat. 
a piece of small ratline was fixed to the slings, with a hand-lead made fast to it, so that it would sink. The mate had the slings, and a man in the boat held the other end of the line, and with it he hauled the slings under the bullocks, which were then made fast, and the animal was hoisted up. In this way forty bullocks were shipped in three hours. Oysters were obtained in great abundance at Clonmel, Snake Island, and in other parts of the inlets, and the cattle vessels, after receiving their loading, took bags of oysters on board for sale at Hoberton. In June 1843, the cutter, Lucy, took 700 dozen to Melbourne, and in July another 700 dozen. In August, the Mary Jane took 500 dozen, and the cutter, Domain, 400 dozen. The oyster beds were soon destroyed, and when in course of a few years I was appointed inspector of fisheries at Port Albert, I could never find a single dozen oysters to inspect although i was informed that a certain reverend poacher near the caledonian canal could obtain a bucket full of them when so disposed gippsland enjoyed one year of prosperity followed by seven years of adversity the price of stock declined so rapidly that in april eighteen forty three the very best beasts only realized six pounds per head and soon afterwards it was estimated that there were in New South Wales 50,000 fat bullocks which nobody would buy. Moreover, the government was grievously in want of money, and in addition to the fees for depasturing licences, exacted half-yearly assessments on the unsaleable flocks and herds. But the law exacted payment on live cattle only, so the squatters in their dire distress resolved to kill their stock and boil them the hides and the resulting tallow being of some value. The Henties in the Portland district commenced boiling their sheep in January 1844, and on every station in New South Wales, the paddocks still called the boiling down, were devoted to the destruction of sheep and cattle and to the production of tallow. It was found that 100 average sheep would yield from 35 pounds to 42 pounds per tonne, by this device of boiling down, some of the pioneers were enabled to retain their runs until the discovery of gold. The squatters were assisted in their endeavours to diminish the numbers of their livestock by their neighbours, both black and white. It is absurd to blame the Aborigines for killing sheep and cattle. You might as well say it is immoral for a cat to catch mice. Hunting was their living, the land and every animal thereon was theirs, and after we had conferred on them, as usual, the names of savages and cannibals, they were still human beings. They were our neighbours. To be treated with mercy, and to seize the lands by force, and to kill them, was robbery and murder. The state is a mere abstraction, has neither body nor soul, and an abstraction cannot be sent either to heaven or hell. But each individual man will be rewarded according to his works, which will follow him, because the state erected a flag on a bluff overlooking the sea, Sandy McBean was not justified in shooting every black fellow or gin he met with on his run, as I know he did on the testimony of an eyewitness. This is the age of whitewash. There is scarcely a villain of note on whose character a new coat has not been laboriously daubed by somebody, and then we are asked to take a new view of it. It does not matter very much now, but I should prefer to whitewash the aboriginals. J.P. Faulkner wrote, The military were not long here before the Melbourne district was stained with the blood of the aborigines. 
Yet I can safely say that in the year in which there was neither governor, magistrate, soldier, nor policeman, not one black was shot or killed in the Melbourne district, except amongst or by the blacks themselves. Can as much be said of any year since? I think not. In the year 1844, Mr. Latrobe was required to send to the council in Sydney a return of all blacks and whites killed in the Port Phillip district since its first settlement. He said 40 whites had been killed by the blacks, and 113 blacks had been reported as killed by the whites. But he added, the return must not be looked upon as correct with the respect to the number of aborigines killed. The reason is plain. When a white man murdered a few blacks, it was not likely that he would put his neck into the hangman's noose by making a formal report of his exploit to Mr. Latrobe. All the surviving black fellows could say was, Quamby dead, long time, white fellow, plenty, shoot em. He related in eight words the decline and fall of his race more truly than the white man could do it in eight volumes. It is not so easy a task to justify the white men who assisted the squatters to diminish the numbers of their stock. They were principally convicts who had served their sentences, or part of them, in the island, and had come over to Gippsland in cattle vessels. Some of them lived honestly, about one hundred of them disappeared when the Commissioner of Crown Lands arrived with his black and white police, and a few of the most enterprising spirits adopted the calling of cattle stealers for which business they found special facilities in the two special surveys. End of section 28